Amen. Good morning, City Light. Good to see you guys. Um, If you have your Bibles or your Bible app, go ahead and open them up. Go to John chapter 18. That's where we're going to be. Eric just read it. And this morning, we are back into the action. The last few weeks, we've been looking at Jesus's, like his final words, his final lessons that he shared with his disciples. When he poured his heart out to them, he warned them, he challenged them, he encouraged them, he prayed with them. But now we're back into some action. I don't know if anybody really listens to the radio anymore, but it'd be like going from talk radio to ESPN radio, okay? Or it'd be like going from watching daytime television to watching March Madness, right? Let the action begin. Let some highlight reels roll. And the first highlight reel is that fateful moment when Judas betrayed Jesus. But before we step into that story, can we talk about Star Wars a little bit? Is that okay? Like maybe a time of confession. Um, how many of you like Star Wars? Star Wars, yeah. How many of you would say, I love Star Wars? Yeah, there's a few of us. For the first 30 or so years of my life, I didn't really know much about Star Wars. I had never seen one of the movies But my wife, who loves Star Wars, she then introduced it to our oldest son, like when he got to a certain age, and then our family, we were off to the Star Wars races, okay? We even endured episodes one, two, and three, just so episode four would make sense to me, okay? And in all of our journeys through the Star Wars galaxy, by far my favorite part was episode seven. Now, if you are alive and you have a pulse, then chances are you have heard of Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens. Episode 7 generated so much buzz that even non-Star Wars fans went to go see it. You might call those non-fans rookies, okay? Like they were more than happy to get on the Episode 7 bandwagon ride and go see the movie, but these are the people who have, they've never seen the cantina scene. They've never felt the awkward moments between Princess Leia and Han Solo. They've, they've never heard, Luke, I am your father, right? <laughs> but they're more than happy because like 95% of the human population went to see episode 7. They were more than happy to go along and see it too. Now in the movie, there are some special moments, these nostalgic moments. For example, there's this scene where an old cloth is pulled off of a white and blue robot. That robot, it has like a silvery dome thing for its head. It's kind of shaped like a barrel or a tall trash can, and it's got these metal, stiff, rickety um, legs of sorts that lets it wobble around or scoot around. Now, when that cloth was pulled off of that robot, all the rookies went, hmm, that must be interesting, right? But all the like veterans, the Star Wars fans, they were like, yes, he's back. I love him. R2-D2 forever. Like the theater I was watching this in erupted in applause at this scene. They were so excited. To the rookies, it just looked like a random moment when a robot kind of comes back to life. But to the the fans, to the veterans, it was life-changing. It was, they maybe cried like it was their wedding day. For them, there was more to the story. Some of you are like, yeah, that was me, you know. There was more to the story. 
And this morning, as we look at this classic story of Jesus being betrayed, we're going to have some R2-D2 moments. These moments where when we first read it, we go, oh, that's kind of interesting, but there's more to the story. John, who wrote this story, intentionally put these details in there. He wants us to see something special about Jesus. He's trying to pull the cloth off of these iconic moments in Jesus's life. There's more to the story. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're not quite sure if you buy into this Jesus thing just yet or not, that's okay. Let me just share with you why this still matters to you. John, who wrote this story, he was Jesus's best friend. John didn't relate to Jesus like he was a fairy tale or a religion. I mean, to John, Jesus was his life. And after Jesus died and rose from the dead and then went back to be with the Father, John wrote a biography of Jesus with the explicit purpose of helping others believe in Jesus like he did. He wanted his friends and family to know the Jesus that he got to spend three years with. He wanted his friends and family to find that Jesus is worth it. So every word that John put in here mattered to him. Every detail, every more to the story moment he put in there so that we too, maybe even you, would find that Jesus is worth your belief. He's worth your time. He's worth your treasure. He's worth your life. So let's just jump into the story, starting in John 18, verse 1. It starts like this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. Now, these words that he spoke, that just refers back to the last few chapters, what we've been looking at the last few weeks, these last lessons of Jesus for his disciples. Now they're out going for a walk. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Pause right there. This is the first R2-D2 moment, the first more to the story moment. Now, when I read that they crossed the brook Kidron, I thought, oh, that's interesting, but there's more to the story. In my mind, I imagined a clear water, bubbling brook with stones and pebbles in it. It was this peaceful, picturesque scene where Jesus and his disciples are like jumping across on the big rocks to get into the garden. But I'm a rookie to all the veterans who were living in Jerusalem when John wrote this story. They would have known exactly why John talked about the Brook Kidron. The Brook Kidron was the waste stream that was flowing from the temple of God. It wasn't clean. It wasn't picturesque, and it wasn't clear water. Upstream from where Jesus and his disciples crossed this brook was the temple of God, where daily thousands upon thousands of lambs were sacrificed. Bulls were slaughtered. Pigeons and doves were killed. It was slaughter and sacrifice over and over again, and all that blood flowed. And it formed into a stream, and then it channeled out of the temple, down the side of a hill, and out past a garden. That flow of blood was called the Brook Kidron, and that garden is the one that Jesus and his disciples just stepped into. So when I read the Brook Kidron, I thought of peace. But when Jesus saw the Brook Kidron, he thought of sacrifice. 
Whenever I first read it, I was like, oh, it's a geographic marker. It's set in the scene. But for Jesus, it was an imminent reminder of, was, of what was going to happen to him in the next 24 hours. John writes this more to the story moment in so that we would see Jesus as our sacrifice. That we might believe that Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus isn't merely an example to follow or a teacher to listen to. He's our sacrifice. Back at the beginning of his biography, John pointed to Jesus and he said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Lamb that came to be sacrificed. The Lamb who came to die. The Lamb who came to spill his blood so that he could wash away our sins once and for all, making us clean and whole, righteous, and redeemed, he would be bloody so that we could be clean. City Light, can I ask you, do you trust Jesus as your sacrifice? I think sometimes we merely see Jesus as an example to follow or a teacher to listen to, but he's more than that. He didn't only set us an example to follow, but he died for all the times we don't follow his example. He didn't merely teach us good lessons, but he died for all the times that we don't follow his lessons. Jesus is our substitute sacrifice. He died the death that we deserve. He spilled the blood that we should have spilled. And instead of shaming us for our sin, his blood washes that sin away and he makes us clean. Jesus died for you. And John writes this more to the story moment into the script so that he can ask you point blank, is Jesus your sacrifice? Is he your sacrifice? John wants you and me to believe that Jesus isn't the founder of a religion. Jesus is the savior from sin. He didn't go to the cross to shame all of us. Instead, he went to the cross to take our shame upon himself and make us clean. Is Jesus your sacrifice? You don't have to jump through a bunch of religious hoops or check a bunch of religious boxes for Jesus to be your sacrifice. You don't have to know a lot of things or give a lot of money for Jesus to be your savior. But you do have to admit that you're a sinner. You have to believe that Jesus is your Savior, and you have to call on his name, cry out to him saying, I am a sinner. Would you be my Savior? And you can do that even this morning, right now, as I'm talking. If you feel God stirring something in you and you're seeing Jesus as your sacrifice, not just an example to follow or a teacher to listen to, but he's the one who died in your place and died the death you deserve, you can talk to him now. Stop listening to me and just cry out for him to be your savior. The first more to the story moment, it comes with a simple mention of a brook flowing through a garden. And then we'll keep going in verse 2. And in verse 2, the villain enters the scene, okay? Now Judas, who betrayed him. And you can just kind of hear the music get darker and more tense. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons, Here is our next more to the story moment. 
When I first read that Judas showed up with some soldiers and some religious leaders, I just thought, oh yeah, of course, he's Judas, he betrays Jesus, this is what he does. But then as I read it a little more carefully, there's more to the story. Judas brought soldiers with him. Now, Bible experts call for different estimates of how many soldiers, but the most conservative estimates is about 200 soldiers that came with Judas. And Judas brought these religious leaders with him, probably dozens. And they brought weapons with them. They had weapons. John wants us to see something here. Judas had been with Jesus for three plus years. He knew that Jesus wasn't violent. But I mean, Jesus did have some knucklehead followers who were zealots, but you don't need 200 plus soldiers and a bunch of uh, pastors with their Bible verses to come out and arrest Jesus with his 11 followers. And you certainly don't need weapons to arrest him. But Judas comes with a show of force. They meant business. They were packing heat and showing power. It was their chance for a shock and awe moment. They wanted to once and for all intimidate Jesus into cowering in fear and surrendering in shame. It's like schoolyard bullies who band together to pick on the little kid. They want to look bigger than they really are. They want to intimidate him. They want to look bigger and sound tougher. John writes this story in this way because he wants to set up a showdown, right? In this battlefield that is a garden, lined up on one side are 200 plus soldiers with their weapons, a bunch of pastors with their Bible verses, and one nasty evil villain who traded all of his time with Jesus, all of his relationship with Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And with that battlefield scene in your mind, keep reading with me, verse 4. It says, Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? I love this. Because everybody in that garden knew who they were looking for, right? Like the soldiers knew, um, the disciples knew, Judas knew, the religious leaders, Jesus knew who they were looking for, and yet he just steps right into the middle of it and he goes, so who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? And they respond, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, they were not calling him by his legal name there. This was no form of ID. Instead, they were making fun of him. They were laughing at him. Nazareth was the backwoods. It was the bottom of the feed chain. Nazareth was where all the rednecks parked their trailer homes and sat out front by their grills in their broken down lawn chairs because they couldn't keep jobs, right? So who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus the redneck. That's what they're saying. We're looking for Jesus the redneck. It's another show of force. The bullies on the playground, the army with their weapons. But then Jesus responds and he says, I am he. And then look at verse six. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Boom. <laughs> Right, These bullies lined up against the little kid. It's like they slip and fall in the mud. 
The army with their weapons pass out and fall over. The religious leaders are knocked out cold and the nasty villain goes down with them. It is an awesome moment, a surprising scene. It's one of those moments that just makes you want to um, shake your fist in the air because your team scored the goal in the final few seconds. But here's the more to the story moment. When I first read it, I was like, oh, that's awesome. That's cool, right? Jesus can just speak a few words and they get knocked over. I love that my Savior can do that. But when Jesus answered them and he said, I am he, that word he is actually added in by translators later. What Jesus actually said, his literal answer was, I am. Who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And when Jesus said, I am, he was not just claiming to be an earthly leader who could gather crowds and teach lessons and perform miracles. He was claiming to be God on earth with all of the rights and privileges, the power and the authority that come with that title. When Jesus said, I am, he went all the way back to the book of Exodus when God first named himself. You see, there's this story in the book of Exodus about a famous prophet named Moses. Moses is wandering around on the backside of the desert, and out of the blue, he sees off to the side this bush that is burning. He kind of freaks out, so he goes to check it out. He's like, what is happening here? And as he gets to that bush, it's still burning, but it isn't consumed. Then suddenly, out of the bush, a voice speaks to him. It's kind of trippy, okay? Welcome to Bible stories. This voice is speaking to him, and that voice says, Hey, Moses, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. He's like, whoa, this is the voice of God speaking to me. And then the voice of God says, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt, rescue my people, and bring them out of captivity into freedom. But Moses isn't buying it. Moses is kind of scared. He's a little worried about this. And so Moses says, hey, you know what? If I were to do this, they're going to wonder who sent me. So what is your name? And then God's voice there in that bush said, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent sent you to them. God named himself. And God is so self-sufficient, so all-powerful, all-knowing, all-controlling, so everlasting and eternal that there are no adjectives to describe him. There are no nicknames that can fit him. There are no photos that can ID him. He is simply, I am. The existing one, the eternal one, the one who is, the one who defines reality, created all things, and controls all things. He alone gives life and breath and heartbeat and brainwave to everyone who lives. He alone upholds the universe by the word of his power and keeps this giant rock of earth spinning for as long as he wants until he wants to shut it down. He is, I am. He can't be defined. He can't be stopped. He can't be contained. And he certainly can't be arrested by a bunch of soldiers and pastors and an evil villain named Judas. Who are you looking for? I'm looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. That's why they fell down. This wasn't merely a man talking. This was God on 
earth. I am in action. All that force of eternity came with the words of Jesus when he spoke them. All the sovereign power of heaven came through with his words. All the godness of God blast past the flowing blood into that garden onto the words of Jesus and landed on Judas and the pastors and the soldiers and they never once stood a chance of staying standing. They were undone by the I am. And City Light, I think, as we catch this more to the story moment, we have to ask, do you believe Jesus is God? Do you believe Jesus is God? Like when it comes down to it, okay, and you're wrestling in your mind with this Jesus figure, this Jesus person, do you really believe that he's in charge, that he's really God? I know how I would answer that question. Yeah, he's God, right? I've done some research. I've read some um, Bible verses. Even right here in our story, it says so. Of course, Jesus is God. But then temptation knocks on the door. And something inside of me says, really? Is Jesus that big of a deal? Really, is he good? Is he God? Maybe, Doug, you should just call your own shots. Do it your own way. You've got this. Or a decision is looming on the horizon. And in my head, I know that Jesus is God and he knows all things and I should listen to his wisdom and hear what he has to say. But something inside of me says, really? Do you really trust him? Do you really think he's going to talk to you? Oh, Doug, just find your own solution. You can figure this out on, this own, on your own. You've got this. In my head, I'll say Jesus is God all day long, but in my heart, I'm not so sure. So can I ask you the question again? Do you believe Jesus is God? That he reigns and rules in your head and in your heart. That his power is greater than yours. That his wisdom is better than yours. That his words are true and that his place is on the throne alone. Do you believe Jesus is God? John was there in this garden watching all the show of force from Judas and his crew. John was watching Jesus step into the scene and say, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And when John saw that go down, he knew that Jesus is God. And he wrote this story because he wants you to also know that Jesus is God. You don't have to be, and you don't get to be. He always has been, he still is, and he always will be God. I'd maybe sum it up this way. Yes, Jesus is our sacrifice, but Jesus is also our sovereign. He's our sacrifice, but he is also our sovereign. He forgives us, and he also leads us. He died for us, but he also lives in us. He loves us, but he is also Lord over us. He is our sacrifice, and he is our sovereign. The story continues, and all the soldiers and these pastors and Judas somehow managed to stand back up and shake off their dust, and they dare to look back at Jesus, who once again just puts the question to them. So, guys, I asked this earlier, who are you looking for, right? And they managed to give the exact same answer, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And so Jesus responds and he says, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Right? Jesus is incredible. He's letting his disciples go free. They had found their target. They found the one they were looking for. So let these other guys go free. Now to make the rest of the story shorter, we'll fast forward to verse 12. And the scene ends this way. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. This is our last more to the story moment. Because when you think about it, it's kind of funny, right? Jesus just laid all these guys out by speaking two words. And yet now somehow they're arresting and binding him. It's kind of like Clark Kent getting arrested. You know, it's only a matter of time before he reveals the big S on his chest and gets away. It's like Bruce Banner being bound. Those ropes are only going to last for so long. It's like a dad getting pinned on the living room floor by his two-year-old son. You know he's just playing along. There's more to the story. There's more to come, right? But for Jesus' disciples, as they fled that scene, it looked like it was the end. Even though Jesus could wipe them out, he didn't. Even though Jesus could get away, he doesn't. Even though he could have broke those bonds, he stayed bound. Even though he could have thrown off and flexed his muscles, he could have gotten away, but he let them punish him and pain him and push him around for the next 24 hours until eventually they pierced him and they pinned him to a tree for everyone to see. And as Jesus' disciples watched as their sacrifice and their sovereign was led away like a lamb to the slaughter, you know they just had to ask and they had to wonder, will Jesus ever come with his own show of force? Like, will Jesus ever show up with his shock and awe attack and take care of his enemies once and for all and get this battle done and over with, finally save the day? John was one of those disciples who was fleeing for his life and then watching from a distance to see what will Jesus do? Will Jesus ever have his day? Will Jesus ever have his show of force? And this same John who wrote about this betrayal, this battle in a garden, he later wrote about another battle. It's in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, John isn't looking back at Jesus. He's looking forward to Jesus. And in that book, John tells us that Jesus will return. He will come back, and he will come back with a show of force this time. And he will finish the battle once and for all. In Revelation 19, John describes Jesus riding on a white horse like the sovereign king that he is. And Jesus is wearing a white robe that is dipped in blood, reminding us that he is our eternal sacrifice whose blood washes away our sins and makes us clean. He is faithful and true. His eyes are a flame of fire and his head is crowned. He's got tattoos of his name on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this time he's got an army with him, the armies of heaven. And those in that army, they are wearing white, clothed in purity and cleanness because Jesus, their sacrifice, spilled his blood for their purity. And they're all riding white horses as well because Jesus, their sovereign, is leading them into battle. And once again, just like in the garden, Jesus says some words. And once again, just like in the garden, his enemies fall out all over again in one fell swoop. But this time, they stay down. 
This time, they're defeated forever. This time, they are destroyed. The battle is done. The enemy is gone. The victory is forever won. You see, Jesus' arrest and betrayal, it was real. It is a true story. Jesus felt those ropes. He felt that whip. He felt that pain. But City Light, there's more to the story. Jesus' surrender was temporary, but his victory will be eternal. Amen? Let's pray together. Let's pray to this Jesus. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being our sacrifice who laid down your life, gave up your rights so that we could be washed clean. We know we're sinners. We know we've messed up. Deep down in our hearts, things are thrown off. They're wrong. We've pushed you away and we thank you, oh Jesus, for being our sacrifice, for loving us before we ever loved you, for dying for us before we ever cared about you. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for being our sacrifice. And oh Father, right now I wanna pray for anyone in this room who might still be pushing you away, who might still just see Jesus as the founder of a religion or just, just see Jesus as an example to follow, oh God, would you open up their hearts? Would you graciously and gently show them your kindness? Would you show them your love, your desire for them? And help them to be honest about their sin, honest about their selfishness, about pushing you away and trying to live life on their own. Oh, and then, Father, would you open their eyes to see Jesus, their sacrifice. Jesus who died in their place for them so that they can spend eternity with you, so that they can know you here on this earth, so that they can enter into relationship with you, Father. And if that's you this morning, you feel God working in your heart right now, it's really as simple as ABC. Admit you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is your Savior then call on his name. Use your own words, however you want to phrase it, but call on him and ask him to come save you, to be your sacrifice, to be your savior. And Father, we also acknowledge this morning that Jesus is our sovereign. He wasn't just God in that garden knocking over soldiers. He's God in this room. And before we ever get knocked over, can we just bow down to you, Jesus? Before you have to pry it out of our hands, can we just surrender it to you? Whatever we're holding on to, may we release it and surrender it to you, Jesus, and trust that you are sovereign and you are a good sovereign. You don't just want to lord it over us. You died for us and now you want to lead us with your grace. So would you be our sacrifice and would you be our sovereign? We pray in your good name. Amen.